John chapter 2, while the young people are dismissed this morning, children to the back if you would, and then we'll uh, allow them to get taught on their <clears throat> level there while we go to John chapter 2. If you're visiting here with us today, we certainly are grateful to have you. You're an honored guest, and we're just grateful to have you uh, try, to, or try us out and come here and spend a few minutes with us in his word. A South Dakota couple decided to go to Florida during a particularly cold winter. They planned to stay in the same hotel where they had honeymooned 30 years before. Uh, but because of their schedules, it just so happened that they had to go down at different times. So the husband went down one day before his wife did. And uh, he checked into the hotel. He found they had a computer in the room and he decided to send an email to his wife. Accidentally, though, he left out one letter from the email address, and it went to the wrong person, and he didn't realize it. Meanwhile, in Houston, a widow, a widow had just returned from her husband's funeral. He was a preacher, had died from a heart attack, and now she had come back home, decided to check her email. After reading the message, she screamed and fainted. The widow's son rushed in and found his mother on the floor and saw this message on the computer screen. He had written to this widow, mistakenly, to my loving wife. Subject, I've arrived. I know you're surprised to hear from me. They have computers here now and you're allowed to send emails to your loved ones. I've just arrived and I have been checked in. I have seen that everything is prepared for your arrival tomorrow. <laughs> Looking forward to seeing you then. P.S. Sure is hot down here. <laughs> when, when you send an email, make sure you get the right address. Amen. Let's get down to business here. Holiness is defined as living according to strict or highly moral, religious, or spiritual system. It is specified or set apart for a religious purpose. That's what holiness means. I want to read a few verses here in John chapter 2. Uh, Maybe a, a scene that uh, we've seen before, but I want to look at it today and and just uh, examine what Jesus Christ really did here in this passage. Verse number 12 of John chapter 2. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days, and the Jews' Passover was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting When he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. And he said to them that sold the doves, Take these things hence and make not my father's house an house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house has eaten me up. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou us? seeing that thou doest these things. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. I want to preach to you today for a few minutes on forward in holiness. 
moving forward in holiness. Father, I pray you'd help us in the next few minutes here that you would make your word plain, help us to hear from you exactly what you'd have for each of us individually, and help us to respond in Jesus' name. Amen. Here in this passage, we have Jesus Christ who said, I am meek and lowly in heart. We have Jesus who was as a lamb before his shearers, dumb, who meekly bore the accusation that were brought at his trial. Uh, he, he endured the shame and even gave his life. Here's Jesus who said to turn the other cheek when somebody strikes us. And now we see a different picture. Here we see him filled with anger, literally cracking the whip over people, perhaps even on people. If we picture this scene, you almost have to see lightning in his eyes, hear thunder in his voice. It must have been frightening. Uh, he must have seemed out of control as he took a whip and drove the people out of the temple. This meek, lowly, turn-the-other-cheek Lamb of God driving everybody from the temple in a fury. So what's the deal? Is Jesus schizophrenic? The answer, of course, is no. He was perfect. Jesus Christ was perfect in every way. Now, aside from me, you don't know any perfect human beings. That was a joke. You don't know any perfect human beings. Because we don't know any perfect human beings, we shouldn't be surprised that we are surprised, kind of looking at this passage, because, uh, by the way, this is one of the ways you know you're worshiping the true God and reading as you read the Bible when sometimes things aren't as you expect. People like to say, well, I like to think of God as this, or I like to picture God as that. And with all due respect, it doesn't matter a hill of beans what we think or what we picture God as. Why would we treat God any different than all the rest of reality? Uh, we try to shape Him and mold Him into something that fits us. Let me just illustrate this maybe using a simple illustration. Imagine you're driving down a road and it's all twisty and windy and turny. That's a word, right? Turny. Uh, it's uh, just back and forth. You're, you're tired of all the turning and the switchbacks. And now you see the road bears to the right, and as it bears to the right, in front of you is a big giant tree. Now, you don't say, I prefer to think of this road as going forward, going straight. It's tired of the turns and the winds. I want to go straight. No, you don't do that. You, in spite of whatever you like or whatever you feel like, you submit to the reality of the situation. You submit your desires to the real shape of the road. If you don't, you're going to wrap your car around a tree. Now, I know that's a simple illustration, but that's the way it is with reality. You can't change it to be something you like. You have to accept it as it is. You don't like the way the road twists, but it doesn't matter. Even though it's distressing, you submit yourself, your wishes, to the reality of the situation. That's what we do with the most things in our life, and we must look at God the same way. You don't make demands of the road. The road makes demands of you. You submit to the reality of it. That's how you survive. Now, Christianity is challenging at times because Christianity can disturb. The Bible is constantly contradicting our personal prejudices, our cultural norms. 
in that way, Christianity cannot compete with religions that have been invented. Because a religion, when you make up a religion, you really make it up in the way you think of God. You decide what God is, and you shape his, uh, who God is around your thoughts. He's never disturbing you. He's never bothering you. Uh, but if you're dealing with truth, if you're dealing with something real, well, real things don't always go according to your plan. Real things sometimes, uh, the truth sometimes contradicts uh, where we were at. We have to submit ourselves to the reality of the situation. One way you know whether God is real and is not created by man's imagination is that sometimes he disturbs you. Uh, some, he's constantly confronting you, your biases, your expectation. Again, this is a big way that Christianity is different than religion. Uh, religion is wrapped around what you think it should be. Uh, look at all the religions of the world. I mean, there's somebody came up with how they feel it is, and that's what they started. Christianity is truth. The Bible is the Word of God, and that is what it is, no matter what we think of it or what we expect. But religion is different. That's how, by the way, Al Capone, a ruthless killer, a brothel owner, a thief, a convicted felon, could call himself a good Catholic. Because religion kind of wraps around what you are. Religion will look at God and make him what fits you. Now, this particular passage here, we see that uh, it might, might just look different. Yeah, like I mentioned, Jesus is the meek and the lowly one, and we have a picture of who Jesus is. And then we see this, and it's just different. It kind of takes us by surprise. Uh, Christianity makes some demands. The Bible commands us, be ye holy as I am holy. You have to change your mind, or to use a Bible word, repent, because you are dealing here with truth in the Word of God. Uh, this particular passage tells us a number of things about Jesus. Maybe they come across to you as a bit disturbing. Uh, these things uh, might trouble our preconceptions. They might be things that we don't like to hear, especially if we're civilized. A man taking a whip, whipping people out of a building where they're just minding their own business. I mean, picture it. We read it, but we don't really... Picture how it must have looked. Um, a, a raving lunatic is how some it might come across to them. Flipping tables, money flying, animals bawling, people running while he lashes them with a whip. It's not the picture we usually have. But we have to submit to the realism of the Bible. Or the car of our life will soon be wrapped around the tree of reality. So I want to look today here at what Jesus is doing, why he's doing it, and what he wants to teach us by what he did. Uh, what is he doing? He cleanses the temple. Now the, the setting here, the Jews uh, flocked to Jerusalem during festival days. Some people estimate the population of Jerusalem to be around 80,000 people. But during festival days and during these special holidays, that could, uh, that could be around 300,000 to 500,000 people would flock to Jerusalem. They came from everywhere. They, they would come to the temple to offer up sacrifices. They had to sacrifice certain animals, oxen, doves, sheep, and different animals. Sometimes they came from a foreign land, and they could not bring those animals with them because of the airline rules of the day. 
And so what happened is they would buy the animals here at the temple. Uh, obviously couldn't bring, maybe it didn't work out to bring the, their own with them. <clears throat> so they came from foreign lands, and when they did, the Jews at the temple could not take foreign money. So then they also had to exchange their money so that they might buy their sacrifices. It was a natural thing to do to have your money exchanged to buy sacrificial animals. But what had taken place is that all this business moved from the streets or outside right into the temple where the prayers were offered, where people were actually doing the sacrifices. Eventually, they did what Jesus said in verse 16 where we read that they made their fa his father's house and house of merchandise. People crowded around uh, trying to uh, give different amounts of money, calling out uh, with all the hustle and the bustle that you find in a marketplace. Then you offered your sacrifice, you paid something to the priest, you said a prayer, and you went out. It wasn't worship, it was ritual. <clears throat> it was a place of racket, of distraction, wheeling and dealing. And you were expected to worship? Couldn't even hear yourself think, most likely, in a place like that. And Jesus looked on this and saw the desecration of a sacred place. Jesus looked at the scene and he essentially said, I have to purify the temple of anything that distracts from the complete focus on God. Notice some of the things Jesus threw out of the temple. Some of them were good and proper sacrifices, but they had come into a place that only God had a right to be. The good things that had become too important, good things that had overshadowed the good one. And that's why they had to be thrown out. Some of these things were fine in their place, but they had usurped the place of worship. And so Jesus takes one look and he cleans house. Now why is he doing it? The reason he does it is because of the holiness of God. It's interesting what the response of the Jewish leaders is here after Jesus has done this. Now you would think that the response is different than what it was. Uh, what do you think if, would happen if somebody just did this in a place uh, like today? You would think the response would be something like, you can't do this. This is illegal. We're calling the police. Hey, Barney, take out your one bullet and slap cuffs on him. You know, that's what we would do. That's not what they did, though. When they came to Jesus here, verse 18, they said, prove to us you have the authority to do this. Look what it says. What sign showest thou unto this, seeing thou doest these things? That's interesting. Why would somebody have a response like that to the destruction of their property? What sign you have to show that you do these things? They knew that when Messiah came, he would have a zeal for uh, holiness, a passion for holiness. They do the messianic prophecy of Malachi 3, verse 2, where it says, But who may abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like the refiner's fire and the fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi. The Bible says he's like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. We have the general knowledge of what a refiner's fire is. <clears throat> it's fire that purifies precious metals. But what about fuller's soap? A fuller was the guy who would take the raw, filthy wool from a sheep, which would not be a pleasant job, and he would purify this using a variety of methods, one of which was fuller's soap. It was really more like an acid taking out the stains. Fire 
and soap. The Jewish leaders knew that when Messiah came, he would have a burning passion for holiness. The Bible says no one can come into the presence of the Father unless you approach in holiness. Uh, Hebrews 12, 14, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Now, since holiness means so much to Jesus, we ask the question, what is holiness? We have a bit of a misperception today, I think, with what holiness is. If I would ask you today to close your eyes and picture the holiest person you know or someone that you would describe as holy, I think sometimes we might picture someone who's rigid, almost severe, uh, definitely would be unapproachable, would be humorless. The word holiness is often connected with boring, stuffy, aloof spirituality. If you're holy, you're an overly spiritual stick in the mud, you're irrelevant, and you're bland. That is not how the Bible presents holiness, not even close. I like what C.S. Lewis said, how little people know who think that holiness is dull. When they meet the real thing, it is irresistible. The Bible talks about the holiness of God being his beauty, uh, his crown. Psalm 96, 9, O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. In Exodus 39, where we're talking about the making of the garments in the tabernacle, they made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote upon it a writing like to the engravings of a signet, holiness to the Lord. Now, what does it mean for a person or a thing to be holy? By the way, did you know that things in the Bible were holy sometimes? Uh, there were, in, the, in the Old Testament, we find furniture that was holy. We find pots and pans that were holy. Zechariah 14.21 Any pot or pan that was separated from common use and given exclusive use in the tabernacle or the temple was considered holy. In other words... Anyone or anything who is exclusively for God, completely sold out to Him, is holy. You're holy when you say, Lord, I am yours 100%. Do with me as you will. So let me ask you today, are you holy? Would you consider yourself holy? Have you given yourself completely to the Lord? We're told that the zeal for the holiness of God's house consumed Jesus. And Bible terminology is eaten him up. Totally consumed him. He had a zeal for the holiness of God's house. He is a refiner. The refiner has a passion for the purity of his gold and silver. He passes it through the fire until it is perfectly pure, absolutely beautiful. In the same way, Jesus Christ is zealous. He has zeal for the purity of in your own life. He wants all the impurities out of our lives. He wants us to be as loving, as good, and as perfect as God Himself. 1 Peter 1.16 Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. So it means then, holy means to be a man or woman of one thing. You have one aim. The whole goal of sanctification is this very thing. Because when we come to Christ, when we're first saved, we're so conflicted. We have passion that goes all over the place. We have passion for many things. And then a holy person is essentially restructured to have one priority, one aim, one goal, 
And everything else is secondary. That goal is Jesus Christ. To know Him. To serve Him. To become like Him. Matthew 6, 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Paul said his number one goal in Philippians 3.10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. Let me, let me just ask you today, friend, what are you all about this morning? Jesus wants to make you holy. Holiness, the Bible says, without which no man shall see the Lord. Jesus Christ cleanses the temple because the Father is holy. And everyone who approaches Him must approach Him in holiness. That's what He did. He cleansed the temple. That's why He did it, because He is holy. Now, what does Jesus want to teach us by doing this? Because Jesus never did miracles just for the sake of miracles. Yeah, He, he had reasons for what He did. He always taught something through His miracles. And uh, He taught us about God, about ourselves, and about the world. What is He trying to teach us here? Notice when the Jewish leaders come to him in verse 18, what sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Look at Jesus' answer in verse 19. He said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He's essentially saying here, I'll give you a sign. I'll tell you why I have the authority to demand holiness. Take this temple, tear it down, and I will raise it up in three days. Now, of course, as usual, they mistook Jesus for what he meant. They always mis he, he, they would uh, purposely sometimes just uh, go the wrong direction what he was talking about. And they came back, it took 46 years to build this temple. Jesus wasn't talking about the temple, he was talking about his body. And talking about his own death and resurrection after three days. Very simply, what Jesus was saying is, you think you can get to God through this temple? I am the temple. I am the way to God. You think that you can get, uh, that you can appease a holy God with these sacrifices to atone for your sin? I am the temple. I am the priest. I am the sacrifice. I am the one, and only through me can you get to a holy God. Without Jesus Christ, everything we do is absolutely useless. Our works are invalid to Him if we are depending on them for our own justification. If you try to get to God through any way but through the door of Jesus Christ, you will fail miserably. The Bible says in John 10, 9, I am the door. If any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. I'll say this, as we try to get close to God, as we try to grow in Him, it is not always a warm and encouraging experience. I recently heard a question heard the question asked why are churches so full of cranky people have you ever wondered that if you went to church for any number of years why are churches so full of cranky people that's a good question and look it's it's my job i'm in church all the time and i know people can be touchy uh, people can be sensitive to criticism churches sometimes have more fights and conflict than unsaved people in the workplace do. You ever noticed that? You ever wondered about that? So I'm talking about people who can get along with others that they don't agree with or they don't even like at work, but when it comes to church, they can't do that. They criticize, they argue, and there's schisms and such. Now, there's several possible reasons for this. 
there might be the matter of misplaced values. They value their income and the life that it allows enough to overlook slights at work. They let those things go. But they don't value their spiritual lives highly enough so to overlook those slights at church. Misplaced values. Basically, people in that position then put more value on the temporal than they do on the spiritual. It could also be an authority issue. On the job, there's a clear structure of authority. You accept it without question. You will suffer unfairness, you'll suffer loss, you'll suffer insults, and you'll keep right on going. But at church, people view themselves on equal footing with everyone else. There isn't any uh, accepted structure of authority. And I'm not only talking about the authority of a pastor, but the authority of one another. You know what the Bible says in Ephesians 5.21? Submitting yourselves one to another. That's the will uh, of God, in the fear of God. If a person usurps the God-given authority in their life, soon they will usurp God's authority in their life as well. And there's another thought that we take. We can call it the curve buster. Uh, Let me explain. Churches are full of people, hopefully, who are trying to draw closer to God. They are trying to get closer to Him. They're trying to know Him more. They're trying to do right. They have the desire to draw near to God. And yet, the nearer you draw to God, the smaller you feel. The more flawed you feel. The more unworthy you feel. You ever read Isaiah? When Isaiah sees the Lord, woe is me, he said. I am undone. He recognized his own wickedness. Now, I wonder if this does not infuse people with some sort of guilt, almost making them or putting them on edge. Might even make us defensive. Because the closer we get to God in His holiness, the more unholy we feel. You ever felt that before? As you draw close, you ever notice the more you grow as a Christian, the more you read the Bible, the worse you see yourself? It's like, I'm not getting better, I'm getting worse. It's not necessarily a bad thing. We need to see ourselves honestly. But this idea of a curve buster, maybe this happened if, maybe for you in college, uh, you, you are familiar with being graded on a curve. It means that if everybody in the class gets a 60% or thereabouts on a test, maybe one person gets a 70. They're not, we don't all get D's and F's. Rather, the person with a 70 gets an A, and the people with a 60 gets... B's and C's. It's called being graded on a curve. That's nice, isn't it? One of the reasons I have a problem with public education, it's relativized too much. When I went to college, they weren't that modern. They were so old-fashioned, they'd give you an F and smile while they did it. Amen. But sometimes a class will have what they call a curve buster. This is where everyone in the class is getting 60 or 70, And that one super annoying smart girl gets 96, 97, or 100. We all know who that is. She's called the curve buster. What this means is that the bad grades stick with the people that got them because she is so far above where they are. Her aboveness or her beyondness took took away all their excuses for their lack of excellence. So when the Bible talks about God being holy, what does that mean? Well, one definition of holiness is separate. And God is separate. Talking about 
the aboveness and the beyondness of God, the transcendence of God. God is the ultimate curve buster. When we get near to Him, all our excuses for our lack of holiness falls at our feet. We have no excuse. God and the Bible are devastating to our self-image if we are depending on our own righteousness to gain any merit with God. That's why he said in Isaiah 64, 6, but we are all as an unclean thing. And our righteousness, that's the best you have to offer, friend, our righteousness are as filthy rags. Why? Because he's the curve buster. His holiness is so high, you and I, we have nothing to offer him. That's why it's all through Jesus Christ. I'll give you an example of how we find our own ineptitude in the holiness of God. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 36, a couple of men asked Jesus, Master, what is the great commandment or the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. Now, friend, that's not inspiring. That's convicting. Think about that statement. I have to love him with 100% of my heart, 100% of my soul, 100% of my attention, 100% of my time, 100% of my thoughts, 100% of my desires. That's holiness. Now, the problem is, I don't know if you've noticed, that's hard. It's hard to live a life like that, isn't it? It's hard to love God the way we should. Why? Because we're not holy. And so what does God do because we're not holy? Well, then we need a refiner. And Jesus Christ is our refiner. We're told in the Bible that he has a zeal for the purity of the house of his father. The temple in our text there. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. That's from Psalm 69. What is the temple? What is the temple today? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God and are not your own? My friend, today, if you're a child of God, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you are the house of God. You are the one that Jesus now has a zeal, a passion for purity and holiness. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. That's what consumes Jesus Christ now. He's committed to make you holy. Zeal consumes him for the purity of the Father's house. And you are the temple of the Holy One of Israel if you've accepted Christ as your Savior. Now what he's going to do is overturn some tables in your life. He's going to run some things out of your life because he wants to remove the impurities that are in your life. It takes a refining fire sometimes. How does a refiner work? And this ought to encourage us because some in here even today, might be in the furnace right now. If you want to serve God, if you want to improve in your walk of faith, you're either going right into a furnace, uh, you're in the middle of it, or you're coming out of it. That's really the only choices if we're serving God the way we desire to. What does a furnace do? A furnace creates conditions so that purities and impurities cannot live together anymore. The heat makes it impossible for the gold and the impurity to stay together. 
It pushes them in different directions. A refiner's fire is a situation in which your love for other things and your love for God can no longer live together. You have to make a choice. By choosing God, you become wiser, more loving, and you become holier. Let me give you a couple of examples. You have a great job, and you like it, you enjoy it. But now your boss is demanding that you compromise your conscience. You have a choice now. Maybe up to now, the love, your love of money and the comfort that it brings and your love of God have lived together. But when the heat of the refining fire is on, you face a choice. Choose you this day whom you will serve. If you choose right, some of that dross falls away. You become holier. You become more like Jesus. You have to choose between your love of comfort and money and your love for right and character. Another example, something happened in your life that you did not bargain for. Cancer, the loss of a loved one, a prodigal. Up to now you felt you were in control. Life was turning out as you hoped. But now it seems like something or someone has entered your life and they're flipping tables over and things are getting all messed up and things are going in directions you did not expect. And you have to choose now. Are you going to be bitter? Or are you going to accept and say, Lord, I submit to your will? You're in the furnace. You're in the fire. And if you choose right, well, more of that dross falls away. You become purified. You become more like Christ. My friend, listen today. God is not putting you in the furnace to cook you. He's putting you in the furnace to refine you. He wants to purify you. You're precious. You're gold. You're silver. You're diamonds. Jesus Christ is the jeweler. He loves you. But the problem is you and I are impure, but He is our refiner. You're in the furnace for your joy, not your misery. God wants to see you bright and shining and pure. He is consumed with a passion for your holiness and for your happiness, which incidentally are the same thing. As you become more holy, you'll become more happy. Choose Him when you're in the furnace. If you're there right now, choose the Lord every time. Let Him refine you. I read a story of a woman who called a silversmith one day, and she was curious and was doing a little research about the process of refining silver. So she made an appointment to come and watch him work. She saw him hold a piece of silver and over the fire and let it heat up. He said to refine this silver, you need to put it in the place where the flame is the very hottest so that it will burn away the impurities. The man had to sit there in front of the fire the whole time. He explained that he not only had to sit there, but he had to keep an eye on that silver because if the silver was left too long in the flame, it could be destroyed. The woman asked the silversmith, well then how do you know when the silver is refined just right? He says, oh that's easy. I know it's fully refined when I see my reflection in it, when I see my image in it. And the same, dear friend, is true of you. God wants to make you into the image of His Son. You might not understand what you're going through, why you're going through it, but the problem is, the everlasting problem until the day that we get raptured into heaven or the day we draw our last breath, we are not holy. 
We're not holy. We ought to try our best to be holy. And as we grow more holy, uh, it happens through the furnace, the refiner's fire. I'm asking you today, let him refine you. Let us respond when the refining fire is on. You'll, you'll, have, you'll recognize it sometimes. Sometimes you don't recognize it until you're already through it. But he wants to refine you. The Lord doesn't want to hurt you. He wants to grow you. He wants to refine you. Oh, let us be responsive to the refiner's fire. Let's move forward in holiness. Holiness is a demand from the Bible. It's not a choice. It's a command. Be ye holy, for I am holy. Will you allow the Lord to do the work He needs to do in your life to make you holy? Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. That's your